Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. On today's podcast, a deep dive on Brazil's economy and healthcare system. Things are bad, but there's more to the story than headlines might show. I believe our institutions are alive and kicking. You know, we have a free press that is crucial. Uh, We have civil society. We have young people getting involved in politics. So these are all important. Everybody knows how tough things are in Brazil right now. It's a country that just passed the tragic 100,000 deaths mark from COVID-19. It's an economy that was ailing even before the pandemic. And of course, there have been lots of worries about the health of Brazil's democracy as well. But there is some nuance. In the economy, there have been some signs of life. Uh, Forecasts have been improving for both 2020 and 2021. The emergency payments that the government implemented of about 600 reais a month, that's about $125, have been a real lifeline across much of the country. In fact, extreme poverty has even fallen in some areas of Brazil. And Brazil's healthcare system, known as the SUS or the SUS, has helped prevent an even greater disaster. Today, to get into some of this nuance in the economy, in the healthcare system, in politics, I'm joined by my friend Arminio Fraga. Arminio is, among many other things, he's the chair of the Institute for Health Policy Studies and a former president of Brazil's central bank. The article Arminio co-wrote for our new special report of America's Quarterly is called Despite Troubles, Brazil's SUS Health System Can Be a Model for Latin America. And he co-wrote that with Miguel Lago and Juli Rocha, also of the Institute for Health Policy Studies. Arminio, thank you so much for joining us on the America's Quarterly Podcast. Thank you, Brian. Um, always uh, delighted to be with you, and thank you for having me here. Uh, it's a real pleasure. Well, it's our pleasure. And, and Arminio, let me start with just a really broad question. In, in sort of the broadest possible sense, what's it like being in Brazil here in August 2020? It, it feels scary. I suppose we're no different than, than many parts of the world, but perhaps a little bit more so. The, the pandemic hit us hard. The fact that we are a very unequal society has a lot to do with that. Sometimes you hear people saying, oh, we're all in the same boat. But uh, what we hear on the ground here is actually more accurate. We may be dealing with the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. I think it's going to be still a tough uh, second half of the year and beginning of next year. And you also have to remember that we just recently went through a very, very profound, massive recession. So the scars from the 2014, 15, 16 collapse still haven't healed when we got hit by the virus. So the, the, the distance between where we ended up and where we might have been had we grown modestly is just gigantic. So it's it's all scary. The politics of this whole process have been difficult. The president of Brazil didn't really take it very seriously. He himself ended up catching the virus. All of this is paralyzing, just to finish. And we're now at a low, at a historic low, 
as far as investment is concerned. And I'm talking aggregate investment, without which no economy can grow. And, and we're really not investing much at all. We're down to 15% of GDP, which is an astoundingly low number for a developing country. So anyway, short answer is uh, doesn't feel good. We still haven't lost hope, but it feels pretty bad right now. How do you envision the recovery looking like? Looking into 2021, 2022, do you think it's going to take a long time for the economy to bounce back? Or, or do you see a way that it, it might jump back more quickly? There are signs that the, the economy is bouncing, largely because this government spending has gone up a lot and has cushioned the blow. The question is whether there'll be a follow-up on the investment side a little bit further down the road. We should be having a very strong cyclical recovery. We're not, despite uh, all the spending, despite the very low interest rates. What does that tell you? Does that tell you that investors and people and consumers have lost faith? I think consumers, but, but particularly business people, are not quite ready to make long-term investments. I think there's still a paralysis, despite uh, a Congress that ha has actually been delivering well on the reform front, there's something bigger that is lacking, and that is more trust in a reasonable political, economic, social future of Brazil. And this creates a, a paralysis that uh, is very detrimental to sustain inclusive growth. And that was the case even before the pandemic started, correct? Indeed. Yes, that was. Is there any way under this government you see a meaningful change in that equation? I try not to make it personal. I think it would require a lot of change. So I find it unlikely. But if we move a little bit in the right direction, you know, I, I, I won't complain. I believe our institutions are alive and kicking. So, you know, we have a free press that is crucial. We have the judiciary and Congress playing their roles. Uh, we have civil society. We have young people getting involved in politics. I would say we have undergoing uh, a very important change in the mindset of business leadership as well in Brazil. I would include that. So these are all important. How would you describe the change in business mindset? I would say a good example is the attitude towards the environment and the Amazon. I think it's very clear. People figured out that the Amazon needs to be protected for the world, but above all for us and the environment as well. I mean, we should be a kind of a green paradise, a large Costa Rica, if you will, in many ways. Not all, of course. It has to do with quality of life, how we see ourselves, what kind of markets we can access, you name it. It's, it's just a fantastic uh, opportunity for Brazil. It's being wasted by the government, but the private sector is all over it. And that, I think, is awesome. Is there any reason, and you know, maybe here I'm guilty of this instinct that many of us have right now, like we've all, especially with Brazil, we've kind of internalized the fact that it's really tough. I mean, we see all these, all these deaths, we see the economic damage that you were just describing, and maybe there's a human instinct to reach for signs of hope. That said, I mean, I've seen at least some signs that maybe manufacturing is is starting to, if not turn around, at least the decline is not as steep as it was. Unemployment is not rising as at fast a pace as some had feared. I see that, you know, in the weekly survey that the central bank puts out, that some of the expectations have improved at least a bit. And that the average forecast is now, I think, 
for a contraction of something like 5.9% in 2020, which let's be honest, is still terrible, but it's not as bad as like the 9% or more that uh, the IMF and some of these other forecasts said were possible. I mean, do you see any cause, just staying focused for just a moment on the economic front, do you see any cause for for hope or are we just kind of grasping at things here? No, I do see signs for hopes, but before we move towards the hope side of things, consider the following. We, we unlike some other countries in the region, even Mexico, for instance, Brazil really went pedal to the metal. There's been massive government spending. So it's not the classic Keynesian anti-cyclical budget deficit related spending because it's not going into conventional investments, going towards social assistance for the most part. But it's a lot of money has been injected in the economy. So, you know, we have here some 45 million people who were getting about 100 reais a month. So $20 a month from the very famous and and I think deservedly famous Bolsa Familia program. And all of a sudden they're getting six times more. And this is reaching out to other folks who were in the informal economy totally on their own. So from a social assistance standpoint, this worked. And from an economic standpoint, it cushioned the blow. But by the time all the numbers are added, this will have been a, a budget deficit of 16% of GDP or, or an increase in, in the primary deficit of some 10 points of which, say, seven were new spending. And that's and that's huge, right? I mean, that's basically the deficits that we were, you know, the market was worried about in Brazil prior to this crisis were on the order of seven or eight percent of GDP. And everybody recognizes that this moment is unique and requires unique response, but it does perhaps point to work down the road that's going to be painful to kind of rein that back in, right? Yeah, I think in the end, we will have to deal with the side effects of this. And remember, we we had already gone through a similar, pretty aggressive fiscal expansion in the Dilma Rousseff years, particularly during the the election year of 2014 and the the following year. We had already done enough to move our debt ratio from 50% of GDP to 75, and now we're, we're bumping up from 75 to 100. So... This is not the standard prices response put in place by a country that that has the pace, you know, has a good history of dealing with this. Just to interrupt you, what, what do you think that means in practice? Are we talking about a return of of really high inflation? Are we talking about unsustainable debt? I mean, what are what are you what are you worried about? I'm I'm worried about both. I'm not saying this is inevitable, but we're certainly not kind of moving in, in the right direction. Until now, I mean, this is fine. A response was called for, and maybe, you know, the micromanagement of what they've done could have been done better. But, it, you know, everything was done in a rush, under pressure, and that's kind of where we ended up. But now we're moving into a, a new stage where folks here are rightly considering a more permanent social assistance system. And then when you add what has become the obvious need to strengthen SUS. You have two worthy, desirable items that will lead to further government spending, but against the backdrop of unstable public finances. It's hard to argue which one is more important. Both will require over the next 20 years additional spending that will add up to 
we're going to guess here, but four or five points of GDP on top of a situation that is not sustainable. And, uh, you know, I did a lot of work over the last couple of years on these numbers, largely because it's pretty clear that the standard budget cutting measures have run out of room. And we have a budget that is now 80% of government spending goes into Social Security and payroll. A total outlier when you compare it with other countries in the planet, be them advanced economies or middle-income economies like Brazil. The middle-income economies spend less than 60% of the budget on Social Security and payroll. That leaves no money or very little money left over for things like investment, education, infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, education is included because you have teachers in there and, and health is included because you have nurses and doctors. But even then, we need to modernize our teaching, our health system. There's plenty of room for leapfrogging even here in Brazil. And so I, as of now, I'm concerned. I'm also concerned because there seems to be here already an obsession with the next presidential elections, which are two and a quarter years away. And that tends to favor populist approaches at a time where when we, we should be planning to get back on some kind of sustainable path next year so we can find you know, our way towards sustainable, inclusive growth. You think it's too early to be talking about the next election? I think it's crazy, but it's already happening because it is pretty clear a more permanent social assistance uh, program, and, and the government has already picked the name for it, it's called Renda Brasil, Brazil Income, would be a very powerful political tool for the government. And the government's been struggling, approval ratings are around 25-30%, but they seem to be moving up already with monetary response because the managerial response was terrible, but money is flowing and people react to that. So it's tempting, but if done in a poorly planned fashion, it could lead to disaster. You need to have policies that really truly address the inequality issue, the lack of opportunity issue, the lack of social mobility issue. None of that is being addressed. Armenia, you mentioned the need to strengthen Brazil's public health care system, the SUS which you are an advocate of, and you write in your recent piece for America's Quarterly that it can be a model for other countries in Latin America. But you also just described this balance that governments have to find in order to address the inequities that the pandemic has exposed without, you know, on the other side, simultaneously damning themselves to future financial insolvency. What does strengthening the SUS look like to you since, while it's true that it that system offers universal health care, less than half of all health care spending in Brazil actually comes from the state. Most of it goes to a private system that a subsection of Brazilians buy into. It's basically a parallel private system. 58% of all health spending takes care of the top 20-some percent. And the other, say, 77% of the population are taken care of with the 42% of all health uh, spending. So it's, it's, it's very surprising that it, it ended up this way. But in a way, again, it mirrors our social structure. It has to do with our history. It has to do with power structures that make inequality a very persistent phenomenon here. That's basically because you have a fortunate few who the 20 percent or so of society who are in the private system who are quite happy with their standard of care. And by the way, 
I mean, I had private health insurance during the five years when I lived in Brazil. And I said at the time, and I still believe it's true, it's the best health care I'll ever have. I mean, the private system, the, the Alberto Einstein Hospital and the Studio Libanese in Sao Paulo, I mean, that is world-class health care, better than I have access to here in the suburbs of New York City. And so I guess it's a dynamic where you have that percentage of society that, that doesn't want to give it up. Yeah. And um, it shows, for instance, in where the subsidies go. If we had a, a different system, a more, more of a, a system that comes from uh, the lineage of the Bismarckian era, folks there have health plans and the poorest are subsidized. In Brazil, because you can deduct healthcare spending from your income, the private system is subsidized and the folks who use it are the ones in the top 20% in terms of income in Brazil. So one, one likely change that will happen over the years, I'm, I'm sure uh, that would be desirable, though it'll be fought. I think that the subsidies should move to the other end from a purely distributive standpoint. Uh, whether that'll happen, we'll see. But this is this is the kind of discussion that is likely to take place here. That that sounds like common sense, but I guess it's been 30 years with the system the way it is, right? But to be clear, Arminio, I mean, what you're talking about here is a shifting of subsidies as opposed to like doing away with the private healthcare system and making everybody be on the public. Yeah, it's common sense. I, I mean, people are free to have their own uh, health plans. The issue is what to do with the system that is universal and, and should, you know, do as well as it can. But in the top 20% are the folks who would be considered middle class by U.S. standards. And and I, I share their, their concern. But I, frankly speaking, what about the bottom 80%? You know, what about them? And that's where I think SUS deserves more. In our article... We concluded pretty much saying that there are two sides of this discussion here in Brazil. One group, the folks who are the kind of the public health advocates, they're saying the system needs more money. And I think the pure arithmetic that, that I've been talking about here supports that view. But there are others who are saying, but wait a minute, uh, there are a lot of inefficiencies. The system should be more efficient. And it, this ended up being a bit of a stalemate that should be broken because I believe both sides are right. I think the system needs more money. Where it's going to come from is a different story. And it should also introduce more modern management techniques, technologies. So hopefully people will see this not as a, as a zero-sum game, but as an opportunity. That's why I'm hopeful, because we have realized that the SUS is quite a jewel that deserves to grow. Do you sense that even in a country as polarized as Brazil is right now between right and left, I suppose. Uh, do you think there's room for that debate? Do you think that public opinion is moving in that direction? Do you get a sense that there's a willingness to do that in society? I think so, and I hope so. As of now, most people would like to have a formal job with the health plan, with the private health plan. But this system isn't really going very far. And I believe there's a growing understanding of the importance of having high quality public education, high quality public health, transportation, security, etc. A lot of these have to be funded by the government, not necessarily managed by the government. So there's a lot of room for experimentation, so long as we keep tabs and we evaluate what, what is done on the health world while, while we're at it. 
the experience with privately managed not-for-profit hospitals is all over the place. So one of the things we're studying at the, the Institute for Public Health Studies is why some have worked and why I have not, and how can we learn the lessons? And I say this because, as I've been implying here, the state in Brazil is not bankrupt, but is really, really, really uh, in trouble. So I think we're gonna have to be creative and do things in a way that gets the better of, of both worlds. Speaking of polarization, Armenio, if I can ask you kind of a personal question, you know, these proposals, hearing you talk about the public health care system and the SUS and inequality and the importance of that, I have received, since we published your piece last week in America's Quarterly, I've gotten some responses from people in Brazil saying, whoa, I thought Armenia was on the right, the ideological right, right? And people think that because you've, you know, you've you've been associated with the the PSDB, with the the Social Democratic Party, in the past. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I I, I guess the assumption then is that inequality and public health care that these are issues more associated with the left. I mean, is that part of your own personal journey, or do you just think that the political debate has gotten so polarized in Brazil that, that it leads to distortions in the way people are viewed? Well, look, I, I was, was a part of the Cardozo government that was at the time part of a, a social democratic movement all over the world, you know, the year of Felipe Gonzalez and Tony Blair and, and so on. And what was done then was, okay, let's take the state out of the actual running of businesses. The state doesn't do that very well, but everything else, the state has a role to play, particularly in such an unequal society. So I, I am on record years ago writing stuff like I'm saying now, because this was in the end what was Cardozo was saying as well. So he was never a conservative, not at all. Uh, Market-friendly, yes but pro-market, pro not pro-business, to use the Luigi Zingales way of putting it. And I very much favor that. I mean, I, I don't think you can develop a, a country without it being the market economy, but it has to be a market that is designed the right way. Brazil has had this very strange predilection for, uh, for instance, the, having national champions, which are really kind of monopolies, and they're terrible for the people. So I don't know, I, I reject these labels, but I've always been a, a, a sort of progressive liberal type. I find it to be the same view, but in different moments, the view is perceived to be either to the right of center or to the left. I think I'm slightly to the left because I'm not a social conservative when you're talking about, you know, identity. Anyway, I think we ought to be discussing the substance rather than the labeling. I, I've, I've been writing about these things in my monthly column in Folha de São Paulo, and I think it's um, it's an interesting moment. Well, it's it's clear that those labels have changed so much over the years in Brazil as in some other places and, and will continue to do so. So, Arminio, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly podcast is produced by Brendan O'Boyle and Katie Hopkins. America's Quarterly is an independent, not-for-profit publication of America's Society and the Council of the Americas. This has been Brian Winter. Thanks for joining us.